The following message is from King's Church 1066, based in Hastings, Bexhill and the surrounding area. For more information, head to our website, kings1066.org. I want to start by asking you some tough questions. I want you to answer honestly, and I'm not going to ask you to share your answers with anyone. So you've got the freedom to be really honest here as we think about these questions together. If you're a Christian here today, I want to ask you, do you ever look at people who aren't followers of Jesus, who aren't Christians, and think that their life is just kind of better or easier or more appealing than yours? Or if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe do you just ever, ever find yourself wrestling those questions of, is the cost of following Jesus really worth it? Is it worth following Jesus? Or maybe you look at other people and you think, actually, would it be worth the big cost for them to follow Jesus? Would that really be worth it? Or maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're wrestling with, what does Jesus say? Is Jesus who he says he is? Should I be a follower of Jesus? But you're wrestling with, there's a cost. Is it worth the cost if I choose to follow Jesus? I suspect many of us have wrestled with those questions or maybe are in a season of wrestling with those questions. And we look around at others and we see non-Christians, people not following Jesus, who are successful, who are happy, who are seen to be prosperous and doing really well in life. And we might look at our own lives and think life is sometimes really difficult. There's real cost and difficulty in following Jesus sometimes. Is it really worth it? They're questions, if I'm honest, I've really wrestled with. Following Jesus for me is kind of pretty costly in lots of different ways. One of the ways following Jesus is costly for me is because I'm a guy who's attracted to guys. I'm gay or same-sex attracted, whatever language we want to use for that. But I've chosen to live in obedience to biblical teaching that sex and marriage are reserved for unions of one man and one woman. That means following Jesus is pretty costly for me. I'm choosing not to pursue a relationship with a guy, not to have a boyfriend or a husband out of faithfulness to Jesus. I'm choosing to be single, to be celibate out of faithfulness to Jesus. Sometimes that's a bit tricky. There's cost in following Jesus to me. That's just one area of life is costly. In lots of areas of life, following Jesus is costly. You may or may not be able to relate to that specific example, but there'll be examples in our own life where following Jesus is costly. And we can get to that point of thinking, would life be easier if I wasn't following Jesus? Maybe for you, it's actually that you're married and actually your marriage just feels really difficult. And you look at other people who've left their marriage and gone off with someone else and they seem really happy. And you think, actually, would my life be better if I wasn't following Jesus' ways? Maybe it's in finance. You think, I know there are some people who aren't quite fully honest on their tax return and do those things that aren't quite above board to get ahead a bit or get a bit more money. And you think, actually, they seem really, really happy. And maybe my life would be better if I wasn't following Jesus. Or it could be as simple as in the things you say. You think there are people who are just kind of a bit fast and loose with the truth, people who say those things to get ahead a bit or just to look impressive or do well at work, whatever it might be. You think, they seem to be really happy. Things seem to go really well for them. And maybe my life would be better if I wasn't following Jesus. Sometimes we look at the lives of others and it raises big questions for us, big wrestlings for us. And if you've ever asked those sort of questions or had those sort of thoughts, I want to reassure you today, that is okay. That is very common. I've had them. Many of us would have wrestled with them. Many of God's people throughout the centuries have wrestled with them, including people in the Bible, one of whom is the author of Psalm 73. And we're going to look today at his wrestlings with these kinds of questions. 
The Psalms, if you don't know, are this collection of uh, kind of poems or songs. They sit in the middle of our English Bibles and they wonderfully kind of express all the different aspects and elements of life and what it is to live the life of faith through all of life's ups and downs, its joys and sorrows, its celebrations and successes. And they kind of examples of what it looks like to live the life of faith, to live with God in all of life. And one of the great things they teach us and demonstrate for us is that we can be totally and utterly honest with God. We can be honest about our doubts, about our questions, about our fears, about our wrestlings, our emotions. We hear the psalmists doing that and we learn from them we can do the same. And that's exactly what happens in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, we get an insight into one man's wrestling with some big questions, big doubts maybe even, and we get to learn from them. They're the kind of questions I've been posing to us already this morning. This is a psalm we're told by a guy called Asaph. Asaph was one of the heads of some of the families in the Old Testament who were responsible for singing and music in the tabernacle and temple. So that's the place that God lived with his people, where the people of Israel, God's people came to worship, and basically this guy was one of the worship leaders or one of the musicians. And this psalm was either written by him, which puts it about in the time of King David, or by one of his descendants serving in the kind of group of Asaph in the temple and the generations that followed. And in this psalm, Asaph gives us an insight into his wrestlings. He's looked at the lives of people around him, people who aren't part of the people of God, aren't following God, and they seem to have a pretty good time. And he looks at his own life, and his life is full of misery and difficulty and pain, and he says it almost causes him to stumble. He's asking that question, is it worth the cost of following God? But then something happens. Something happens that completely changes his perspective of things and helps him to see why it's always worth following God. We're going to go through Asaph's journey together and see what lessons we can learn from it. Let's first, though, read Psalm 73 together. It's a fair chunk of Scripture, but it's good for us sometimes to hear and sit under chunks of Scripture. So let's read it together. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes went out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches." All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph's taking us on this journey that he's being it through, and he starts with the problem. The problem he was facing, and she starts with this key point. His key point is that God is good to Israel and to the pure in heart. Not many people who are perfect, he knows no one's perfect, but those who by faith in God are seeking to live God's ways. He says God is good to his people, to the pure in heart. But even though that's true, Asaph had almost stumbled. Almost stumbled because he was envious. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. By the wicked here, he just means the people who aren't following God, who don't trust in him and seek to live his ways. And he looks around them and he sees how happy they are, how successful they often are, how prosperous they are. The word he uses actually is the famous word shalom, talking about peace and wholeness and wellness. They get that. He doesn't seem to have that. It kind of gets him thinking, is following God worth it? And he says it almost knocks him off the path of following God. Asaph is in exactly the same situation that many of us will be able to relate to at different points in our life. And one thing just to notice is we can take comfort for that. We're not alone in these thoughts. And God isn't scared by these thoughts. God isn't scared off when we ask these kind of questions, wrestle with these kind of things. He's actually allowed them to be enshrined in the scripture that he's giving us. He's okay with us wrestling with big questions. This psalm, like so many of the psalms, shows us it's okay to be honest. It's okay to express what's going on inside. And Asaph starts to further explain to us this problem he's facing in verses 4 through to 12, telling us about the prosperity of the wicked. Their lives are easy, he says. He says they're fat, which in this context is a good thing. They've got lots of food, is basically what he's saying. They don't experience trouble like other people do. They're proud and they're violent and they're unashamed of it. They scoff and they speak with malice and they don't have any worry about what they're doing. They're so comfortable and so confident, they openly mock God, basically saying as if he knows what's going on down here. And he summarizes it all in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Basically, their life seems easy and comfortable and things are only getting better for them. They're only getting richer. And of course, Asaph is generalizing. He knows that. We know that. But he's also being honest about life, isn't he? Sometimes bad people do really well. Sometimes the lives of people not following God look more appealing than the lives of those of us who are following God. We know that. That's not hard to see in the world around us. It makes me think here of social media. If I open Instagram and scroll through Instagram, I see people who are rich and attractive and seem to have the best clothes and cars and amazing holidays and this incredibly appealing life. People who seemingly have no interest in God sometimes actually are quite explicitly quite anti-God, and yet their lives seem so appealing. And there's something powerful about that which can cause us to wrestle with these questions, can cause us to maybe stumble like Asaph was beginning to stumble. Their lives seem to be so good. Asaph is talking about his world 3,000 years ago, but he could so easily be talking about our world right here, right now. 
And you see, the problem is he sees this prosperity of the wicked, but that's not his situation at all. Verses 13 and 14, he tells us what he's facing. He's been trying to keep his heart clean, washing his hands in innocence, trying to live God's way, but he says it's been all in vain. It's been pointless. See, he feels like it's been for nothing because his life is hard. He told us in verse 5 that the wicked are not stricken. In verse 14, he tells us, all day long I have been stricken. The wicked not stricken, all day long I have been stricken. Their lives are easy. His life feels so hard. Maybe we can relate. Maybe we think of people we know who aren't following God, and even though they seem to actively reject him, they seem to have easy lives. Maybe we're we're, um, stricken by mental health battles, and they're not. Maybe we're struggling to feed our families and they're not. Maybe we're at risk of losing our job and they're not. Again, Asaph's world could so easily be our world. His experience often is our experience. This is Asaph's problem. And it causes him almost to to stumble. Is it worth following God? Can I keep going? Why am I doing this? But in the middle of the psalm, we reach a turning point. Asaph has a problem, but he finds an answer. He thinks about how to understand this circumstance, how to reconcile kind of what's going on. He wrestles with it. He tells us it's hard work. He tells us it was wearisome until, until something happens, until he reaches a turning point. Things start to change. And notice they don't change because his circumstances change. They change because he looks up from his circumstances and he looks at God. He says in verse 17, this was all until... I went into the sanctuary of God, the place where God dwelt with his people and the people went to worship God. And then I discerned their end. You see, when he looks up from his circumstances, when he looks to God, it totally changes his perspective. He gets a bigger perspective. He realizes he's been focused on the now, but he also needs to focus on the then. He's been focusing on the here, but in a sense, he needs to focus on the there. He needs to focus on God. Literally, he says, he needs to focus on the afterwards, the end, what comes then. When Asaph looks at God, everything changes. His perspective changes. And presumably, Asaph was at the sanctuary. He says that's where this happened. Presumably, he was there in some worship with the people of God. That was kind of his role as one of the people who served in the tabernacle, which I think is just a helpful reminder to us of the importance of worshipping, but particularly of worshipping as the people of God. There are good reasons why God calls us to be part of a family like this and to gather together and to worship together. God does something in us as we set our gaze on him corporately. What we're doing here even today is so vitally important to help us keep on the path of following God. And what Asaph sees in his answer is that actually what he's been observing isn't the end of the story and isn't the full story. He first talks about the end of the story. He talks about the end of the story for the wicked. He basically says he realises things can look pretty cushy for the wicked right now, but actually they're not going to end well. Verse 18, it says, Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Remember verse 2? Asaph is at risk of his feet slipping. He says, actually, no, no, it's the wicked whose feet are placed in slippery places. He says, verse 19, they'll be destroyed in a moment swept away by terrors. In the same way that you wake up and a dream suddenly is kind of gone in a moment, he says when God acts in judgment, it will be like that, gone in a moment as if it were just a dream. Asaph's talking about the reality of future judgment for those who don't follow God and trust in him. 
And this is a really tricky part of the psalm for us. It kind of seems like Asaph is kind of delighting in the downfall of other people, even in punishment after death. And he's very clear that this will be God's doing. There's something God will do. God will be the one to destroy. God will be the one to sweep away. And Asaph there is saying nothing different to the consistent message of the Bible. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, the Old Testament has this kind of slightly angry God who's going to do all this judging stuff, but then Jesus comes and shows us the nice God. I'm afraid, friends, Jesus says stuff as harsh, if not harsher, than this about judgment if we choose to reject God and we don't trust in him. Rightly understandably, we find that difficult when the Bible talks about the reality of judgment after this life if we don't trust in him. Let me say a couple of things that might help us on that. Because our big kind of problem here is we get to this point of, well, how can it be that there's a God who is love, who in the very core of his being is love, and yet, as the scriptures tell us, is going to judge and punish the wicked after death? A few things that might just help us. One thing to note is that God never takes delight in the destruction of the wicked. That's really important. God isn't rubbing his hands with glee about this idea. He tells us explicitly in Ezekiel 18 and 33 through one of his messengers in the Old Testament, he doesn't take delight in the destruction of the wicked. It's also important for us to recognize when God judges and punishes, he's doing what is right. He's enacting justice. The thing that all of our hearts long for, we are hardwired to want justice, is the right thing for God to do. And if we ever doubt that or question that, we've got the wrong idea of who God is and of quite how serious our sin and our rebellion of him against him are. If we struggle with what God does, we need to change our view of who God is and how serious sin is as a starting point. And yet also we need to recognize that God sent his son into the world so that he could maintain his justice and he could offer total and utter freedom and forgiveness to us who don't deserve it, but to whom he wanted to show that grace and that mercy. You see, justice leading to judgment is what God has to do. That is the right and fitting thing for him to do as a just God. Mercy, allowing freedom from judgment, is what God freely chooses to do. There's an obligation on God to judge, because we all reject him. There's no obligation on God to show mercy, and yet he does. It reveals to us his wonderful, wonderful heart. As we read scripture, it's not shocking that God should judge and punish anyone. It is shocking that God should ever forgive and save anyone. And yet that's what his heart desires, he, what he longs to do. God doesn't want anyone to experience his judgment and punishment. But he does say that we have to choose to accept the offer of forgiveness, the offer of freedom from judgment and punishment that is made available to us in what Jesus has done. Scripture is clear when God judges, he's just doing exactly what he should do. And that it's a result of our actions, including our failure to receive his or accept his offer of forgiveness. But it's equally clear that total and utter, complete, 100% forgiveness can be received as we just take hold of it through receiving the gift that God wants to give us. There's some things that we want to bear in mind as we read about the kind of theme of the judgment of the wicked in Scripture that help us with some of the difficulties we might face with them. Back with Asaph, he's realizing that because of future judgment, even if things seem really good for the wicked right now, actually their long-term prognosis is not good, it changes his perspective. 
We might be tempted to question whether following God is worth it, but Asaph's saying, take the long view and things really start to change. And I think that's such a helpful challenge to us, to take the long view, to think about more than just the now, because let's be honest, we live in a now culture. We live in an instant access culture. We expect everything instantly and quickly. We expect pretty much all kind of pain and suffering to be able to be dealt with quickly and easily. We expect instant answers. We don't have to live with mystery much. We just get out our phones and Google and find the answer. We expect instant stuff. Prime can get us most things through our door the next day. We live in an instant access culture. We're just not used to taking the long view. But as the people of God, we have to get used to taking the long view because now is not the end. Now is not all there is. Asa says it changes our, position, our perspective when we live with an eye on eternity. So he talks about the end of the wicked, and when he realizes what's coming for them, he realizes this rather changes things. But also he talks about both the now and the end of the righteous, people like him seeking to follow God. It's striking there's no promise of change of circumstances. What Asaph receives from God isn't a, oh, don't worry, hold out, it's going to change in a few weeks' time. Nothing changes in his circumstances. He just realizes there's something far more important than those things he's been looking at and thinking about in the here and now. He says in verse 23, Asaph talking to God, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Asaph realizes the true blessing of following God. The thing that ultimately almost always makes it worth it isn't a happy, easy, comfortable life. It's not actually any blessing that God can give us in a sense. It is God himself. God himself, he is the great blessing that makes following him so worthwhile. Following God is always worth it because as his followers, we get him. We get intimate relationship with him. Asaph recognizes that because he's part of the people of God, God is always with him. God guides him takes him by his right hand, and in the afterward, at the end, in eternity, will receive him to glory. The most perfect eternity with him. He's basically saying the wicked maybe seem to have a good time right now, but it's not going to last. God's people may not always have a great time right now, but even in the midst of that, God is always with us, and he's taking us to an eternity of perfection with him. As Asaph thinks on this, he thinks on, wait, no, 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 God is the reason to follow God. He starts to reflect on the supreme worth and value of God. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or we could translate that, when I'm with you, there is nothing on earth I desire. He recognizes that God, God himself, is the great blessing. It's not anything that God gives us that makes it worth following him. It is him himself that we get relationship with him. The giver is supremely better than any gift he gives us. That is the great blessing. And here I think is where the challenge for us lies in this psalm. Is this how we view things? Do we view God himself as the greatest blessings he could give us? Do would we rather have a happy life, a comfortable life, an easy life? Or would we rather have relationship with God? Do we realize the supreme value of what we get as followers of him? And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if I always do. I think I find it so much easier as I go through day-to-day -day life so often to slip into valuing God's blessings more than God himself. I find it so easy to end up wanting the gifts more than I actually want the giver. But I can also tell you from years of experience of following Jesus that the gifts will always let you down and the giver never will. 
And I've experienced that with so many things that I can so easily allow my heart to pursue to try and satisfy me. Good things and bad things, but that always let you down. For me, it's being emotionally dependent on friendships, academic achievements, publishing books, speaking to huge crowds. You can easily pursue these things thinking, this will finally make me feel worthwhile, finally make me satisfied. Every single one of them will let you down. Even God's good gifts will never satisfy the longing deep in your heart because you're made not just for the gifts, you're made for the giver. And the giver is the supreme blessing we receive from him. The gifts never truly deliver. They will always let you down. The giver will never let you down. He will always truly deliver. And that's what Asaph notes, that God never lets us down. Verse 26, my heart, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's never going to let me down. You might look at the lives of other people around you. You might wrestle with the fact that they look happier, they look more comfortable, their lives look easier than yours. But friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you lose everything good in this life, if you lose your health and your money and your family and your friends, if you lose everything good, if you've got God, you are still infinitely richer than anyone who does not. Whatever difficulties we face, whatever the cost for us personally of following Jesus faithfully, it's always worth it because God is worth it. That's what Asaph has learned. That's the challenge he has for us. And he sums all of this up at the end of the psalm, the last few verses, kind of summarising his conclusion. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Talking about the end of the wicked. But for me... It is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Those words at the start of verse 28 are my favourite in this psalm. They may be some of my favourite words in Scripture. It is good for me to be near God. Other people may have lives that look easier. Other people may seem to thrive and flourish in romantic and sexual relationships that fall outside of God's plan. But for me... It's good to be near God. Whatever the cost, it is good to be near God now and into eternity. This is a psalm to encourage us. When life feels tough, when following Jesus feels acutely painful, when other people's lives look so much better than ours, this psalm encourages us to keep going in faithfulness to Jesus. It encourages us to take the long view, not just to be focused on the now, but also to take, as it were, the bigger view Remember, we have the supreme blessing of whatever is going on, however tough it is, we have intimate relationship with God in the midst of that. Maybe today that's an encouragement you need to receive. Maybe today God is wanting to use this passage to tenderly comfort and encourage and spur you on in the difficulties or the pain of life and the cost of following Jesus. Inviting you to look up, to see afresh the supreme value of who he is and the blessing you have in relationship with him and receive that encouragement. Maybe for you today, that's what God wants you to take away from Asaph's journey. There's encouragement for us here. There's also challenge for us here. The challenge of, do we find it so easy to prize the gifts more than the giver? The challenge of, do we really see and recognise and value the supreme value and worth of God himself. Because if we don't, there's a risk that life circumstances will cause us to be almost knocked off the path as Asaph was. It will shake us. And if we don't, we're missing out. If we focus on the gifts, not the giver, we will always miss out because they will never deliver in what we want them to. 
I know for me this is always such a challenge. The temptation for me is to look to the things that the world will tell me will make me happy. That in so many ways are preached to me day after day after day, moment and moment by the world around me. These things will make you happy. And it's so easy for me to waste my time and my energy and running after them, running after the wrong things. The challenge of this psalm is where we take hold of the true thing that satisfies. We take hold of what God is offering us in himself. And I do think this is particularly different in our cultural context. Many of us in our cultural context are very blessed to have access to lots of stuff and lots of opportunities. We get to enjoy so many of God's good gifts. Therefore, it's so easy to get consumed by them and forget the giver. I think it's also difficult for us in our cultural context because so many of us, myself included, live life at a pace where it's very hard to discipline ourselves to slow down and deeply connect with God, to see and savour him in such a way that we truly get to experience the supreme goodness of the giver even over his gifts. This is difficult. Not an excuse not to do it, but reasons we need to recognise. This is hard. We need to work hard at us. And he says, challenge to us is, is God our highest treasure, our highest prize? And what does it look like for us to make that a reality in how we live our lives? I want to learn from Asaph's journey. I want to prize the giver more than his gifts and kind of increasingly be able to declare his words of when I'm with you, there is nothing else on earth I desire. Maybe you're here and you're feeling the same. You've heard Asaph's journey. You think, you know, I, I want to learn from this. I want to be like Asaph where he got to. How can we grow in that? How can we grow in savouring the giver more than his gift, seeing the supreme value of God? Well, for some of us, the first step we may need to take is to become a follower of Jesus. It may be actually some of us haven't even taken that step. There are very clearly two types of people in this psalm. Just this throughout Scripture, there are very clearly two types of people. And Scripture's clear message to us is that we, if we persist in rebellion against God, the end is not good for us, as we've seen Asaph has outlined for us. Things may look okay now, but the end is not good for us. We're on those slippery places, a precarious place that Asaph talked about. Friend, if that's you here today, maybe today God is revealing that to you in your heart. The wonderful good news is that Jesus and Scripture are also abundantly clear that we don't have to stay as one of those people. That the invitation is there for each one of us to receive forgiveness, receive welcome, receive adoption as God's child, and to receive the giver himself as the supreme blessing we could ever know. And as we turn away from a life of rejecting him, as we choose to trust in him and accept his promise, he forgives us, he begins to transform us, and he will receive us into glory with him as Asaph has said. If that's you today, don't leave here today without taking the opportunity to find out more, talk to someone, talk to a friend you came with, who you came to someone, or talk to one of the leaders, or talk to someone in a lanyard who looks friendly. There's loads of us who'd love to tell you more about Jesus, what it means to follow him, and if you want to, to pray with you so you can make that choice today. I mean, the band can come up at this point, please. What about for those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How do we respond to the challenge and the lesson of this psalm? Well, I'm struck that Asaph's answer came by seeing God afresh. It's when he lifted his, his gaze up to see God afresh that everything seemed to change. Friends, we need to keep on doing the same. For Asaph, that happened while gathering with the people of God, worshipping together. As I said already, what we're doing today is so vitally important. You will not thrive and flourish in the Christian life if you don't regularly gather with the people of God to worship him together, to set our gaze on him together. 
Make it an absolute priority in your life to be firmly rooted in the corporate worship life of a family uh, of God in a church like this. But it also happens individually. We also get to raise our eyes to God in worship individually, day by day. We want to be people who commit to seeking God, to encountering him through worship and through his word, to getting to know the giver. So we kind of see and taste his supreme goodness and we get to experience the fact that nothing else will satisfy. Friends, there is nothing as important, nothing as worthwhile we can do with our time, with our lives, than to deepen our relationship with him. That's the challenge we want to see from this psalm. And I guess the challenge I want to lay down to us is what's that look like for each of us in our own context, our own lives, our own routines? What's it look like later today, into this week, beyond, for us to be deliberate about pursuing God, connecting with him, deepening relationship with him, raising our eyes up from our circumstances to see him, that he might reshape our view of all things. We're going to take a moment now to to worship, a chance to give our hearts afresh to God, a chance to behold him afresh, but also a chance to think, what does this mean for me? What does it look like for me to do this day after day after day as I go away from this place? We're going to draw near to the one who is near to us to express our heart's desire and seek his help in this. If you're willing and able, why not stand as we seek to engage with God? I'm going to pray and the band are going to lead us. Father, thank you so much that because of what you've done in your son, any one of us who's chosen to follow you can say that it is good for us to be near God, that you are always with us, you dwell inside of us, that we have the greatest gift possible. And Father, we say we're sorry for where we've prized your gifts more than you, where we've looked for satisfaction and light in life and things that you've given us rather than in you. And we say we want to be a people who see the supreme worth and value of who you are and the incredible fact of relationship that you've invited us into. Would you help us right now to behold you afresh? Would you raise our vision away from our circumstances to see you? And would that change us? And would you help us to be people who go away from this place and wholeheartedly, actively pursue you, pursue knowing you and enjoy every bit of the relationship that you have welcomed us into, that we might see and savour you the wonderful, true blessing, the one who makes it all worthwhile. Come and work in our midst now. Speak to us, empower us. Do us good, we pray, Lord God. Amen.